Welcome to the Writers Forum. I'm Mike Tusa, and my guest today is author Gary Goche. Gary is a New Orleans native. Um, I'm probably going to need this updated, Gary. I have you hitchhiking through 35 states and eight countries. Gary has his Ph.D. in English Lit, and he's taught at various uh, universities, taught writing and composition. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I'll give you an update on the uh, update on my hitchhiking career. It's 16 countries now, so you're a little bit behind. Actually, 14 countries in the last four years. Uh, so I had got the old backpack out, been traveling around the world. Uh, COVID got me holed up in central Mexico most of the last year. I had hitchhiked through four of the 32 states in Mexico before COVID, and it's a great country for hitchhiking. One of the things you would never know if you get your news from the news is Mexico is a great country for hitchhiking. But anyway, yeah, it's nice to be back in New Orleans. Nice to see you. And good. I'm just waiting to go out and add some more countries to my list when COVID breaks. Well, good. We're here today to talk about Gary's novel, Hippies. But Gary actually has written an academic book uh, on Fielding's novels. He's written a children's book. Uh, he has poetry that's published, uh, as well as literary fiction and peer-reviewed journals and book reviews. How do you how do you write all these different styles? Does it take a different mindset to do so? Yeah, I would say it definitely takes a different mindset, especially moving from the let's say poetry, fiction, and literary criticism. I really feel like I'm working different brain muscles for all of those. So whatever I sink into, I have to sink into, go down that rabbit hole 100%. For me, writing poetry is like, you know, it's like, uh, I guess I would call that acute pain. And writing a novel is chronic pain. And, and But when I'm doing literary criticism, it's a whole different analytical thing. So I don't know if that's true for everyone, uh, but for me... I have to compartmentalize. It seems like it would be. Well, we're going to talk today about one aspect of your writing, literary fiction, creative writing. And so I'm, before we turn to the writing process and how you wrote Hippies, um, I want to ask this one. I, I read this the other day, and I thought maybe it might be a good way to start. Um, is it true that creative writing cannot be done objectively? Uh I'm not sure what you mean. Like when I'm doing when I'm doing the uh, in, in hippies. Let's say you, you mentioned literary fiction. Let me say that hippies, the book we're talking about today, is both literary fiction and historical fiction. By literary fiction, I don't mean it's better than anything else. I just mean it's a certain style. It's a style where you're 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 less concerned with following the plot points to see what happens at the end, and it's more about circling down deeper and deeper into the subjective spaces within and between characters and maybe playing with language and structure a little bit in a way that does not fit a particular genre. So to me, that's literary fiction. And um, and it's not better than anything else. It just creates certain expectations. Now, when I look at hippies as historical fiction, that might help me to address your question a little bit better. I mean, a, a regular history book would be written in a way that it gives you the, a series of objective events, let's say. When you're writing literary fiction, or at least when I am, the point is not to give you that objective series, but to get into the subjective spaces of the people who lived in that period. So it's not about the objective reference points. It's about 
what made what did they worry about what did they dream about what what caused their joys and their sorrows what was it like to really be inside the minds and hearts of the people in that period so to me that's what distinguishes historical fi fiction from historical nonfiction and i think you know in that sense all of my books are really about getting inside those subjective spaces uh so in that sense, I'll tentatively go along with you and say, okay. for me, yeah, I can't work in the objective zone when I'm writing novels. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. Let's talk a little bit more then about the writing process for hippies. Um, and, and maybe this is a general question, but you can tie it back to hippies. Where do the ideas or the inspiration come from for this type of story well, for you? In this case, for hippies... But for all of my books, the ideas come from, you never know where they're going to come from. It's like you don't, you don't control the muse, she controls you. You know, I know it sounds trite, but writers have been saying that since Plato. And I don't know where the inspiration is going to come from. For example, hippie sounds like a very natural fit for me because I spent, I've hitchhiked through 16 countries. I spent my youth uh, living that hippie lifestyle. Then I took... 25 years out to raise my daughter and now I got the old backpack out again and I've been hitchhiking around the world so I've accumulated those experiences I've had I've had roommates from many countries and different races and just so much through my travels but you know I didn't start there when I started writing I went through the academic programs with my MA from UT Austin and my PhD from CU Boulder so I really spent a lot of time there on the academic side of writing and then I did my children's book and poetry and different things. And eventually when I got to hippies, it seemed like that was the most natural fit because my whole lifestyle lent itself to that kind of story. But the, the muse simply did not tap me on the shoulder until that moment in my history. And then once I sunk into it, it was, uh, I said, uh, writing poetry is acute pain and writing novels is uh, chronic pain. This one was not that painful because it, it, it triggered all the things that I remember from my childhood. I mean, I was not old enough to go to the Summer of Love in San Francisco or Woodstock, 1969 Woodstock, but I was old enough to see the live coverage on television as a little kid. And I do remember my grandmother screaming at the television about dirty, filthy hippies. And I was sitting there as a little kid, secretly, quietly pulling for the hippies. So, <laughs> so anyway, it triggered a lot of positive memories from, from my uh, childhood. So that's well, kind of how hippies came to be. Well, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but let's, let's go step by step here if we can. Um, when you decided you were going to do this, and you're talking about the muse, did you outline a plot first? Did you create characters first? How do you get this process started? And this might be helpful for those out there who are trying to write. Yeah, I guess sometimes when you t writers talk about uh, planners or pantsers, I think they say. Planners are the people who plan everything out. Pantsers fly by the seat of their pants. And I'm a little bit of both. I do usually have to plan something out. I will create a plan and then I'll start free writing and the plan will change sometimes dramatically. Then I will create another plan and then as I start free writing it will change dramatically. For me, I always need to have a roadmap in my head to write the next page, but I know with 100% certainty that the roadmap is going to change. 
often the change takes the form of me fighting with my characters, much to the dismay of my mental health professional. I do get into arguments with my characters. And in the case of hippies, it was, it was clear. I got halfway through that book, and I had a plan in mind, and my characters were saying, no, 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 that's not what we want to do. We want to do this other thing over here. And I have found that when I get into a fight with my characters, the character is always right. So that's one way that the plan changes. For me, I always need a roadmap, and I always need to be ready to change it suddenly and dramatically on the spur of the moment. When you talk about the character, and we're going to talk about characters here in a second, but I've heard other writers say that a good character will help, help write the story. Is that true, or is that, was that your experience? Yeah, with I, think, I think fundamentally that's true for me. Once the characters start developing, they do develop. It's like a two-year-old, you know, they develop their own personality, and it's no, no, no. So in a way, it's a little frustrating when my characters don't want to do what I have planned out for them. But in another sense, yes, they help write the story. If you just follow, once the characters start <laughs> developing their own personality, you can just follow the characters and they will write the story. I think that's probably more true of what I'm calling literary fiction in the sense that you don't need a strong sophisticated plot like you get in a Dickens novel where everything fits perfectly into place at the end. Uh, if you're circling down, down into those subjective spaces, once the character has a personality, you can really just follow the character. All right. Well, in this case, in Hippies, you have characters like Jasmine and Ziggy and, and Ragman. I know when I read it, I knew these characters, meaning yeah. I had people in my life that I could identify with uh, some of the characters. How do you write a character like that that's also relatable to folks who, say, didn't grow up in our generation? Yeah, that's, that's, that's something I had to be mindful of as I was writing the characters. And I think, honestly, when all is said and done, the characters do connect more directly to people, either people of our generation or young people who I know, for example, with a keen interest in what was going on in the, in the late 1960s, in the hippie era. Uh, if it's someone who does not have an interest in that period, I think the char I, I make an effort for the characters to still be relatable. You can certainly miss a lot of the reference points to, you know, Neil Cassidy or something like that, and it should not impede your appreciation of the book. And I as I was writing, when I would throw in a little something here and there about, say, Neil Cassidy or Ken Kesey or or uh, someone else from that period, I was mindful to try to make it, you know, icing on the cake and not a core part of understanding the story. So I think you could read the story with, with, with very little context and still understand the universal struggles. These are characters, come, it's basically a coming of age novel on one level. And what's interesting is these characters happen to be coming of age right at that dramatic cultural moment of, of the hippie movement in the, in the late 60s, 1970. So it's a coming-of-age novel that's framed in that historical moment. But everyone should be able to connect to the coming-of-age element, if I have done my job well. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think, I'm not sure. I'll wait and get some feedback on your readers on whether I've done my job well. well I, but, think, I think you have, having, having read it. Certainly, I identified with, with many of the characters. Well, let me ask you about that, and I'm sure you've been asked about asked this before. 
are any of these characters autobiographical? And for those that might not be, are they composites of people that you actually knew? I would say composites is probably everything in my literature, in my fiction. Uh, nothing is directly autobiographical in the sense that there is no one-to-one... -one co I know you're looking because I know you, you probably know some of the people that I know, but um, uh, there, there is no one-to-one -one correspondence to any one character or event, but there's a general family resemblance to the lifestyle that I lived, and so someone like you would recognize that family resemblance. Each character is probably a composite of people that I knew, maybe characters from literature, and maybe aspects inside my own psyche, uh, all rolled up into one new character thrown in an interesting situation. Uh, sometimes I think that all novels are maybe psychomachia, where every character is really an aspect of the writer's identity. And in that sense, it might be an unconscious autobiography. Uh, and, you know, maybe that is what novels are. I'm not sure. As the writer, there's only so much I know. Readers often know a lot more about my books than I do. So. All right. Well, let's let's jump in. And I want to start off with, with an, a question and then a, uh, a follow-up to that uh, that relates directly to hippies. Now, some writers think that it's really good to have an opening hook in your book to catch the reader's attention and draw them in. I think of for example, of Camus' first line in The Myth of Sisyphus that, quote, there's only one truly philosophical problem, and that is suicide. You know, draw somebody in like that. Yeah. You start your novel with a date, yeah. May 4th, 1970. In fact, it's almost like a prologue before you get to chapter one. What's the significance of that date in history and in your novel? And maybe this ties back into you, what you were talking about before, about literary fiction versus historical fiction. Yeah, that day, May, May 4th, 1970, of course, that's the day of the Kent State Massacre, which, in, in which four students, college students, protesting the Vietnam War were killed by the National Guard in Ohio. And that's one of the watershed moments of the hippie era, I would say, after maybe... 1967 Summer of Love in San Francisco, the 1969 Woodstock concert in upstate New York. Probably the Kent State Massacre would be the third defining moment okay. of the hippie era. Now, when I started it out, I was going to track everything toward, I was going to lead my characters towards something having to do with that, that moment. And what happened, once again, this is one of the cases where I get halfway through the book and my characters wanted to go in a different direction. And I said, okay, let me follow the characters because I know they're always right. And by the time I got to the end, I realized, you know, this will be, this will be better if I put that May 4th reference at the beginning of the novel, right when Jasmine is facing down her trauma in, in, in a facility in upstate New York. And uh, if I started there, it's kind of like an epilogue at the very beginning of the novel. Uh, just that one page where she's up there on May 4th struggling with this particular trauma, and then you realize at the bottom of that page that the rest of the novel is going to be uh, the three weeks prior to that moment. Those three weeks leading up to that traumatic moment is going to be covered in the next 280 pages or whatever. Or, or whatever. And then I thought, maybe I'll just hang that moment there as Jasmine's traumatic moment and let the reader uh, let the reader connect that symbolism to Kent State in whatever way 
they choose to, or they don't have to connect it if they don't want to. But I thought I would, and that's one case where I would let the reader connect the dots if and how they want to do it. I just wanted to end on that moment of trauma for Jasmine with a little hint that maybe there is, are some symbolic connections that can be drawn between okay. the end point of my story and what's happening over there in Ohio. All right. Well, let's jump in. Can you uh, read us an excerpt um, from yeah, the novel? Yeah, let's see. I have, uh, I have this one, like a two-minute excerpt from near the beginning of the novel when I'm just kind of laying out the setting, uh, the, the historical hippie setting. Okay. The novel is set primarily in New Orleans. Uh, my characters wander around a bit. There are lots of references from California to, uh, to uh, Wisconsin to New York. Uh, but it's primarily set in New Orleans. And so here's a, a couple of minutes introducing the setting. The magic mushroom head shop and dry cleaners sprouted up like a beautiful extempore fungus in the Faubourg Maroney neighborhood one day about three years back. In, the early, in early 1967, after a heavy New Orleans rain. Things happened fast in those days, especially for a generation of rootless and unrestrained youth. So three years back from this sunny morning in April 1970, that was before Woodstock and the Summer of Love, before Martin Luther King or Bobby Kennedy had been shot, before Sergeant Pepper's, it was a long way back those three years, and no one really knew from whence the head shop had sprung. The dry cleaner's counter seemed to predate the shop, as the hippies swarming into the Maroney at that time were under the impression that the only people who used dry cleaners were over 50, square, and enormously wealthy. The owners were a pair of drifting lovers, Claire and Cool Breeze, who had found their spot. They were no longer teenagers, but had matured into their late 20s bodies as picture-perfect hippies from the heartland of Minnesota, the kind that editors of Life and New York Magazine love to put on glossy covers to show the paradox of innocent beauty and hippie menace. When Claire and Cool Breeze first wandered into the Faubourg Maroney, it was a working-class neighborhood just downriver from the French Quarter, rough and tumble. A few gay couples had come in, trailblazers as it were, restoring historical homes in a neighborhood they could call their own, but otherwise tourists and outside traffic barely made it as far as the Creole cottages. So Claire and Cool Breeze got the place on the cheap and started sanding and scraping and hammering to make this one Creole cottage into their head shop dream. They intended to top the building with a gigantic brightly painted sheet metal psilocybin mushroom cap modeled on the rotating root beer mugs that famously sat on top frost top restaurants. Perhaps thinking of the longboats of their Viking forebears, which were protected from ill favor by conspicuously sculpted figureheads, Claire and Cool Breeze may have thought that their gigantic mushroom would protect their place of business from the man. But alas, it was not to be, for the Faubourg Historical Preservation Society still had enough squares on the council to torpedo the idea. All right. Okay. All right. So in the novel, um, you talk about various themes from the 60s, maybe the early 70s, like the psychedelic drugs and Vietnam and sexuality. 
But it seems to me that you're cautious about these themes. Is that correct? I mean, it's not all love and happiness. Yeah, I guess I'm cautious in the sense that I wanted to capture the period and all of its contradictions and complexity. Certainly, the, he the, the hippies are the, are the heroes. They're the protagonists. But there's a lot of darkness as well as light. And I think there was a lot of darkness as well as light in the period. But the light wins for me and for the hippies, I think. Uh, but surely all of those things, the sexual openness, the psychedelic drugs, the anti-war scene and the tensions within it, all of those things could be incredibly liberating or wildly destructive on a personal level. And I wanted to touch on both sides. Ultimately, it's a, it's a, it's a happy, I don't know if it's a happy ending, but it's ultimately the bright winds over the darkness but certainly I wanted to capture both threads running through the novel, running through the personal lives of these intimate characters, and also running through that historical moment in time. Okay. Um, you know, you talk about, as I read the book, you talk about the inner contradictions as well as the external factors, and you've explained that a little bit, but pick one of these things, the psychedelic drugs, the war, sexuality, whatever, and talk about how you laid out the inner contradictions of that well i would just say to look at the psychedelic drugs there's a lot of there's a lot of liberation and enlightenment going on in the novel as these young people explore explore these drugs as a way for to primarily in this case we're looking at marijuana and lsd not the other not 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 speed or or uh, or, or uh, cocaine or other things Primarily, we're looking at marijuana and LSD as drugs that had a liberating value at that time. Uh, that was part and parcel of re-envisioning society in the late 1960s, that these drugs were going to give you at least temporarily some capacity to envision your connection to the world and to each other in a way that... that broke the, uh, broke the boundaries of the, what, what, what was seen as the warmongering people in Washington, D.C. Uh, so, and I think there really was a liberating element to those uh, mind-expanding drugs, especially in that period. But there's a dark side, too, and you, I don't want to give too much away in the novel, but certainly the, 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 the experiments with drugs have a dark side in the novel that cannot be denied. But at the same time, the liberating side of the vision that they, that they fuse into this movement uh, the liberating side cannot be denied either, so the contradiction still stands. It's not like one resolves into, into the other. The contradiction still stands. Well, let's, uh, let's end with, you're going to read a longer piece for us, I think. I have a five-minute piece. Yeah, let's let's do that, okay. and, and, um, and then we'll wrap up after that. You're listening to an um, uh, interview with Gary Goche, the writer of Hippies, and he's about to read us another excerpt from that novel. Go ahead, Goche. Okay, now we're getting, this excerpt is, is rather toward the end of the novel as things are really coming to a head and uh, Jasmine is back, is reaching that point in the, in the uh, upstate New York that we talked about on page one. So May 4th uh, is, is, is close upon us. Now note the main characters throughout the novel are Jasmine, Ziggy, and Ragman. Uh, and so here's Jasmine toward the end of the novel at, let's call this her moment of truth. Jasmine, the doctor, said the woman. Yes, the doctor, thought Jasmine. She could not grasp what doctor they were referring to, but it sounded right. Yes, of course, 
there was the doctor. She followed the woman into the house and through a rustic maze of hallways. They came into a wood-paneled study lit by high windows with curtains pulled back. A fortyish woman with tight lips and glasses stood and stepped around the desk when Jasmine came in. How are you feeling today, Jasmine? I think I'm a little better, Dr. Meyer. Yes, now Jazz recognized Dr. Meyer. It was all coming back. Good, that was quite an event you had, Jasmine. Dr. Meyer sat in one of the upholstered chairs and gestured for Jasmine to sit on the couch. You were quite broken down. Do you remember where you were when we found you? Not exactly. I mean, it's coming back, but not completely. We were sleeping in the car in a parking lot, a train station parking lot. I got out to use the bathroom, but something in the station, something horrible. It made me think the car wasn't a car. It was a box. It was all some big mistake. I needed to get out and get away from that box. I needed to get to Rhinecliff. Everybody said go to Rhinecliff. Somehow I got there. Yes, good, said Dr. Meyer. Yes, you were in Rhinecliff. Do you remember talking to me about it yesterday? Yeah, now I remember, said Jazz. I've been here a few days. You and I talk about it every day. Good, now we just need to unravel the story backwards until it fits, until you remember the parts you've blocked. Okay, it's coming back, said Jasmine. The tan acid, I took the tan acid and it gave me weird flashbacks. I was in medieval Germany. There was some kind of divine thing in my body. It appeared like a disease, but it was divinity. It was like the divinity was in my body, but I couldn't feel it right. Yes, good, Jasmine. We've been through this, but now you're awake. You see it for yourself. Now I remember, Jazz said, medieval Germany. Someone was trying to help me with the divine thing in my body, but something bad happened. Something bad happened to Ragman. But wait, that's where I lose the thread. Ragman was in a whole different time and place. He was, he was New Orleans just last month. Do you know what we found in your pocket, Jasmine? Something, I can't remember. I had some coins, a, a coin purse maybe? Well, do you remember what was in the train station, the horrible thing? No, no, said Jasmine, becoming agitated. You're close, Jasmine. We need to look at these things together so you can control them instead of having them control you. Think, Jasmine, think. The train station, you put something into your, park, your pocket. Yes, I put something in my pocket. Jasmine was starting to break down. Don't you want to know what it was, Jasmine? Are you ready? Do you want to wait until tomorrow? No, I mean, yes, I want to know what it was. I'm ready. I can almost feel it in my hand, in my pocket. I had my hand in my pocket and was squeezing, crumpling. It was paper. Good, Jasmine. I think you're ready to cross the next bridge. Dr. Meyer stepped around the desk. Everything seemed to be happening in slow motion. Uh, the slow motion was killing Jasmine. Would she never get round the desk? Dr. Meyer sat next to Jasmine on the couch with the crumpled paper in her hand, resting on her lap. What was it, Jasmine? What was the paper you put into your pocket? Jasmine gasped for breath. Ragman, she whispered. Dr. Meyer put her hand on Jasmine's shoulder. With her other hand, Dr. Meyer held out the paper. Excellent. Well, that's all the time that we have uh, for today. I'm Mike Tusa. This has been the Writers Forum. I want to thank Gary Goche, uh, our author. Uh, we have been interviewing Gary about his novel, 
hippies and discussing it. Thanks, Gary. Okay, thank you, Mike. Pleasure.